You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, my name's Eden. I'm a chapel intern, and I hope you guys <laughs> I hope you guys are having a good Monday. So today is the first message in our series called Becoming Love in Action. Um, and our chapel frame today is Mind of Christ, which looks at how we live out our faith in our current context. So Romans 12 calls us to worship by offering ourselves as sacrifices to God, dying to our flesh, our desires, and the ways of the world each day, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, dead to self, alive in Christ. As we enter this time of worship, let's open our hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit and be expectant for him to move. How are we doing today, Asbury? Good to hear. Today's scripture reading will come from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good and pleasing and perfect will. Reading of the word for the word of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's my privilege this morning to introduce our speaker of the morning, Reverend Dr. Sarah Baldwin. Dr. Baldwin has served the Asbury community as the Vice President of Student Life since 2014. She is a familiar face to most of us in this room as her leadership and pastoral presence shapes our community daily. Before coming to Asbury, Dr. Baldwin worked for nine years as a university pastor and dean of spiritual life and inclusion at George Fox University in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Baldwin graduated from Asbury College in 1993, a proud member of the servant class. After completing her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology, Dr. Baldwin completed a Master's of Divinity at Asbury Seminary, and in 2014, she was awarded her Doctorate of Ministry focusing on leadership and emerging culture from George Fox University. Dr. Baldwin is also an ordained elder of the Free Methodist Church. In addition to all of these accolades, Dr. Baldwin is a dear friend of mine and my boss. From the very beginning of our friendship in sixth grade youth group, I have admired her creativity, courage, and passion to pursue the heart of God. As we have grown older, I have also grown to appreciate her leadership and deep prayerfulness. I recall a time several years ago when I was asking her for insight into a challenging situation with a young adult friend of mine. I remember her saying something to the effect of, what is her next step Jesus. This response highlights beautifully the heart of Dr. Baldwin. Her passion is to create communities which form the hearts of college students and strengthens them for their next step toward Christ. She is a passionate lover of God, of college students, and of her family, her husband Clint, her daughters Maddie and Emily, and her son Kai. It's my pleasure to welcome to the stage this morning a dear friend and a great leader, Reverend Dr. Sarah Baldwin. That was very kind. 
Thanks, Michelle. In sixth grade, we did not imagine this moment, did we? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I am so pleased to get to speak with you. It's such an honor, and it is really a delight of my heart to get to share what God has been working in my heart and life on as I speak from Romans 12, focusing on verse 1. So, over the last few years, I have developed a real interest in researching how we, mostly how we Americans, use our time. Time is our most significant resource, and so I've been a bit of a timeologist for myself. What is the best way that I can use my time and live my best life? as they say. So a few years ago, an author that I admire inspired me to track my time, to see how I was investing the hours of my life. And I've done it several times since then, a, a week here, a day there. But uh, at the beginning, I tracked my time for about six weeks. And I learned a lot of things about myself because each week is 168 hours. And even if, uh, let's say, you sleep for 56 hours a week, uh, that would be, like, I average about 7 hours, 7.25 hours per night, if you know how many hours per night you sleep. And let's say the combination of your time in the classroom and your time at a part-time job, let's say, let's uh, estimate big. Let's say you've got 40 hours of time where you have to be somewhere other than your residence hall room. So even if you put all of that into your 168 hours, you have 72 hours left to figure out how you are going to invest your time or how you're going to use it. So I tracked my life in 30-minute increments. Now, I know this is a little bit nerdy and over the top, but here it is. Oh, you can't really see it, but it is my example of my Excel spreadsheet. So I tracked my time. This is an example. I wanted you to see a picture of a whole week, and if you're really, really interested, I'm sure I'm happy to share it with you so you can actually see it. But I tracked my time in 30-minute increments for about six weeks, and I learned all kinds of things about myself. And I imagine, I encourage you to do the same, and I imagine... Even if you did it for one week, even if you did it for three days, you would learn a lot about yourself. And one thing that I have learned is that we in our culture tell ourselves a story. We narrate to ourselves that we are time poor. I don't have enough time. I'm so busy. I never have time for a fill in the blank. But when you track your time, you begin to realize that actually you have all the time in the world for whatever it is that God has given you to do. You really do. You have all the time in the world to be about the things that you both want to do and God is giving you to do. So truly, how we spend our hours is how we spend our days, our lives, says author Annie Dillard. So if you want to know how you're spending your life, track your time hour by hour. It will tell you a lot about who you are as a person. Our culture is really on to time intentionality for sure. There's so many books on productivity and planners. Uh, there's always something new coming out in the time management world. You can always find the latest article on how to manage your time. We're on to something because our time 
is finite. It is a limited resource. So let's say you live for 90 years. So here's a picture of your life in 90 years, nine rows of decades. And so most of you are around 21. So here you are here on this list of decades. Depending where you are on this time map, your perspective on time changes. How you think about time here at this red dot where you're 21 is going to be a different perspective than how I think about time when I fill in my red dot, how your parents think about time when they fill in their red dot, how your grandparents think about time when they fill in their red dot. We all have different perspectives on our time. Our time perception changes. In fact, it even changes in 24-hour increments. So how many of you have been like, what happened to that day? Like, I didn't get anything done. Nothing happened. It just evaporated. You've also had the experience in 24 hours when you've said, I cannot believe how much happened in this 24-hour day. I mean, you can lay in your room and binge on Netflix for 24 hours, or hopefully not totally 24 hours, or you can fly around the world and be in Japan. Like, there is no telling what can happen in 24 hours. Time is elastic, and how we perceive our time shapes how we think about our lives. I listened to an interview recently of a man who wrote a book called 4,000 Weeks. And his idea was that we have 4,000 weeks on this planet. That makes us about like 74. So hopefully you have like 4,200 or 4,300 weeks on this planet. But his book was like, if that is all there is, how do you spend your time? So in this interview, he said something that I've been thinking about. He said... Every moment of our time is shot through with finitude. By finitude, he means that every moment is all that there is. This is a philosophical term that means to deal with our limitations and finiteness. There is no afterlife so that all we have is the present moment. There is nothing beyond our own personal timeline. So if we, all we have is this moment, then all we have is what we can contribute, what we can get done. Everything is completely finite. If this is your belief system, then your time management plan is going to be extremely focused, right? And I can understand our society's emphasis on time management, and I can understand our obsession with self-focus. Because although there's been enough of God's truth to kind of filter through to our culture so that we have an understanding of the need to care for others for our common good, most of us, if we believe in finitude, if we believe that there is all that it is, is this moment, and someday at the end of our 4,000 weeks or our 3,000 weeks or our 90 years or whatever it is, that is the end, stop, then our energy is going to be very intense upon our own experience as the self. We're only going to be motivated by the self because the self is all that there is. We are finite. Have you ever stood in front of a microwave and watched that 30-second timer tick down? And then when it gets to the beep, you're like, well, that was 30 seconds of my life right there. I just watched it play out. <laughs> That's, we've all felt finitude. Like we've all felt finite time. We know what that means, this side of heaven, when time is gone. Now, as Christ followers, we think differently about time. We believe that we're eternal beings. So instead of being fearful or anxious about our time, we can see this as an investment. I really like the lyrics that Mumford and Sons have in their song, Awake, that says, in these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die, and where you invest your love, 
you invest your life. I like how they're struggling with what do we do with our mortality? What do we do with our investment of our time? What does it mean to exceed the boundaries of infinitude? In this book, in Romans, and particularly in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul teaches how we can live our lives. From work, to leisure, to screens, to outdoors, to hiking, to being with our family, Paul proposes this idea that all of our time is an act of worship. So for our series, Love in Action, Paul's writings in Romans 12 to 14 is all about how we live our lives. Very practically. In fact, he's got like 33-some commands about how to live our lives as Christ followers in really practical ways. And they all boil down to releasing our personal privilege. This is love in action. But he starts in Romans 12 verse 1 with what does it mean to be a living sacrifice to God as an act of worship? Or how do I invest the finite hours of my week into the eternity of God? So he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on on the basis of God's mercy to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Let's start with that verse, the beginning of it. I appeal to you. Paul is about, he he is ready to winsomely and lovingly appeal to us on the basis of what he has just spoken from Romans 1 through 11. Now, we haven't been talking about Romans 1 through 11. But in a moment, he's going to say, I appeal to you, therefore, meaning like all of Romans 1 to 11, which is the doctrine of the church. It's the really hard stuff. It's the stuff like the wages of sin is death. It's the stuff like none of your righteousness can earn your way to heaven. No one is righteous. No, not one. Not even you. None of us can earn earn our salvation. So he's pulling all of that as a foundation. Now we've been watching, we watched the CLC get built, right? And we saw it being built on a foundation. That's what Paul is doing here. He's building on this foundation of doctrine. And he says, he appeals to us winsomely, compellingly with love. And he says, therefore, based on everything that we have learned as our doctrine, as our theology of the church, therefore, by the mercies of God... On the basis of the mercies of God, I appeal to you on the basis of the mercy of God. Okay, we just have to take a moment and look at that cool verse. Because I just told you that Paul is summarizing the doctrine of the church. And he could have right here, he could have said, based on your need for justification. He could say, based on the wrath of God. He could say, based on the need for a blood atonement. He could have said a lot of things. But Paul uses the mercy of God. Paul is summing up the doctrine of the church as the mercy of God. A.W. Tozer talks about that God's character is all the things all the time. So God isn't like justice one, just one moment and merciful another. He's not kind one moment and just the other. He's all things all the time. So God's most merciful is his most loving. It is his most just. It is his most righteous. It is most all-knowing is his mercifulness. So it's from this place of mercy where the whole of the gospel story is bound together that we are appealed in love to live a life of God. Do you know what good news this is? That the mercy of God is the basis of your life in God. Many years ago when I was an RD at a different school, 
It was a lot of years ago. There was a student named Renee. It's not her real name. I remember I was in my RD apartment and the students came downstairs and they said, there's a problem with Renee. And I said, what's going on? They said, come upstairs and see. So I went upstairs. Something had happened. Something that Renee was deeply ashamed about had come to life. And Renee was in her closet and she was not coming out. So I sat down on the floor of the closet with her, tried for a bit to convince her to come out of the closet, but there was no convincing Renee. She felt the weight of such shame. Now, you may not hide in your closet, or you might, but I'm sure there's been times in your life when you would prefer to hide in your closet than deal with the negative emotion you were experiencing. Sometimes memories of our past experiences, our choices, our sins, our shortcomings, sometimes it comes over us like a wave of shame. We're so remembering all the ways we have fallen short. And do you know that Jesus meets us in that moment of deep and profound shame and his response to us is mercy? I appeal to you on the basis of God's mercy. I appeal to you on the basis of God's mercy to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. The Christians in Rome would have understood a lot about animal sacrifice. So all around them, there was plenty of Romans who worshipped all different kinds of deities. It was a very pluralistic society. And some of the Romans worshipped the deity of of Juniper and Pluto and Minerva. And offerings were regularly offered. Animals, dead animals that were put on the altar, the The priest of that particular deity was split it open and see, was the animal whole, complete? Was it worthy? Did it make recompense for whoever was bringing it forward? Would it help them become more lucky? Would they be seen in the eyes of that deity? The Old Testament was also full of the law of atonement. Pigeons for this sin, doves for that, a lamb for another. (laughs) So the Jewish Christians would also have been very aware of this idea of bringing forth your offering on the altar. So for these early Christians and these Romans, you know, when they heard things like your worship, they didn't automatically think of wham. Like maybe they did, maybe they did like a little bit down the road. <laughs> they didn't automatically think of, of wham or even like this beautiful experience that we just had with the women's choir. They would have heard the word worship and they would have thought of blood. So this teaching makes a lot of contextual sense to the Romans. Put your offering, put your life, put your blood offering as atonement on the altar to make right whatever it is, the shame that you have brought before. From the beginning of human history, There's been this idea that humans were bound in this cosmic harmony that must be maintained. The balance must be set right between nature and society, between personal purity and wrongs. And to restore this equilibrium between the gods of the cosmos and human beings, a sacrifice was required, a cosmic exchange, a life for a life to restore harmony. This was also part of the Israelites' practice, perhaps in a different theological way, though. Upon the altar, the dead offering would have been up for inspection. Was it good enough? Was it complete? Was it acceptable? Well, we we certainly don't put blood offerings on the altar. But I, I wonder if we have some things that are similar to the ancient people of Rome 
In their culture, everyone was obsessed with making sure that the cycle was complete, that they were offering up whatever it was that would make them worthy and acceptable in sight of the deity. Even the Christians are wondering, like, how do I offer up? What does it mean to atone for this shameful way that I've lived and been? And in our culture, we consistently ask ourselves, are we good enough? Are we smart enough? Are we acceptable by the gods of culture? Are we acceptable by others to earn our worth? We put ourselves on the altar of approval of others instead of on the altar of sacrifice to God. So here it is. Paul has this new teaching for us, a teaching that is old as the Bible, but relevant to 1033 today on January 30th. Paul says, you know what? There's nothing that you can do to make yourself worthy enough for God. There's nothing that you can do that can earn your way into salvation, earn your way into grace, earn your way into the mercy of God. But instead, your life, a living sacrifice on the altar, this is your offering to God, your life. And, and it, this is what it is, whole and complete to God through sacrificial worship and not a life that is consumed and over. Not a life that is left to rot like it did in some of those altars in Rome, but a life that is meant to be alive, to have eternity in its heart with God. When you surrender your life as a living sacrifice, this is where time management and infinitude is transformed. This is where we see that it's not about our productivity, but our response to the mercy of God. This is where the transformation happens. This is where those little 30-minute blocks on the Excel spreadsheet or the things in your planner or the things on your mind or the ways that you're trying to earn your approval. This is those little mini altars that you've been sacrificing to the gods of culture, to the gods of self, or the gods of approval. This is where those little daily, hour-by-hour experiences become the place of sacrificial worship. They become an altar. Ellsworth Callis says, your desks become altars. He was a president, seminary president, professor. Your desks become altars. As a student, it means that the work given over to God Your hours of study, your ability and time on the athletic field, your time on the film set, your time training a horse, the hours of your day become the altar for your worship. Eugene Peterson says it like this, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. When we do that, we open ourselves up That is not what we can accomplish, but it's what God can do with us. When our time is a living sacrifice to God, we step out of finitude and we move into eternity. We do not live in finitude. We live in an eternity that begins now in your life when you say yes to the things of God. Our story is within God's story. This change of perspective changes everything. 
Our life is no longer ruled by our productivity. It's not ruled by the end all of our work. Our life is no longer ruled by our accomplishment or our acceptability or goodness or image and culture. We have new ways of sacrificial living because we know that the present tense, this moment, is not all there is. Our story is actually hidden within the story of God. Living our best life is in God's life, not our own life only. And it releases us from the confines of finitude. It allows our hours to be submitted to God for the very best way to live. It's part of an internal story. In John chapter 9, Jesus meets this man who had been blind from birth along the road. The disciples are, are with him and they immediately see the man and they, they make the assumption that the people of those days would make. That something had gone wrong in the cosmic harmony of things. They said, who sinned? This man or his parents? Because in their thinking, in ancient people and Old Testament thinking, there had to be a life for a life, a mistake for a mistake, a deformed life for a deformed limb. That was the way they understood things. Now we know that that is not how God works. There are certainly things that parents or we can do that have profound consequences on the lives of our children or the lives of our friends or the lives of people that we love for sure. But that is our human sin working its way out. God does not need to compensate for our sin by causing evil to happen in our child in the form of this physical manifestation. So Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question, disciples. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Jesus decries the plan that we have to set the universe right, that there's a cycle that, that is cause and effect, that it's a grind, that it's season after season with only going around in a circle and, and everything must make harmony with everything else. Instead, Jesus says, no, this isn't about cause and effect. Look at what God can do. And I wonder if some of you are asking this question about your life. You're like, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why is this part of my story? Why did God allow that? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. Jesus says, look what God can do. How can the glory of God be revealed in your life when your life is the living sacrifice on the altar? Jesus appeals to you in mercy. On the basis of mercy, I appeal to you for all that has gone already, all that goes before, all that comes after. Madeline Lengel says it like this, all of your sin and shame is like one burning coal thrown into the ocean of God's love and mercy. Then Jesus goes on in this passage to redeem our time. He says, we need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here while working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I'm in the world, there's plenty of light. I am the world's light. This is holy time management. <laughs> this is the movement from controlling and managing our finite time to being part of the story of God in the light of Jesus. This is more than cause and effect. 
This is more than me filling out 30-minute increments, helpful as that could be. This is more than your goals and plans, as good as they may be. This is more than what you can accomplish in life. Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. This is not a cause and effect thing. This is what we can do. This is what the Holy Spirit can do through you as part of the story of God. Our time is a response to the light of Christ in the world. We can be energetically about the things of Christ. Our time is transformed. We don't live only to serve ourselves and make ourselves worth it. We're going to sing in just a moment and close our service. And as we do, I wonder if you're ready to no longer deal in the currency of finitude. If you're ready to be like, hey, it can't be up to me. Like, I can't do all the things. And do you know all the shame in my background? I I can't hold that all together. You no longer have to deal with the currency of finitude because we live in the power of hope. Your life, a sacrifice on the altar, is revealed by the light of Christ as an offering to God and to the world. So I appeal to you on the basis of God's mercy. What does your time look like? Thanks be to God.